BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. As artificial intelligence improves, us humans continue to find ourselves in novel and confusing situations. A recent San Francisco Chronicle feature recounted the story of a grieving man who lost his fiance in 2012 and, desperate to find closure, created an AI chatbot with her text messages. He knew it wasn't her that he talked with, but it was something. He's not the first person to do this, and he won't be the last. So in the next hour, we'll talk about how far AI has come in recent years, what roles these other intelligences should play in our lives, and the ethics of the AI afterlife. That's all next on Forum, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Last fall marked eight years since Joshua Barbo lost his fiancée, Jessica, to liver problems. In the years after her death, he struggled to find peace. Then one day, Barbo stumbled upon a service using some of the most powerful language generation tools and technology and eventually trained a chatbot with old texts that she'd sent him. So for reasons perhaps even he didn't understand, he created a Jessica bot and began talking with it. And then things began to take some surprising turns. Here to tell us this story, we're joined by Jason Fagoni, a San Francisco Chronicle journalist who published an epic feature about Barbo and this creation. Welcome, Jason. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. So just tell me about Joshua Barbo and his relationship with his fiancée, Jessica. Sure. So Joshua and Jessica were a young couple in Ottawa, in Canada, Uh, They met about 10 years ago when they were in their 20s. They're both very nerdy. Uh, They loved comic books. They loved fantasy sci-fi. And they just clicked. They they fell for each other. And they were together for about two years until Jessica's liver started to fail. She suffered from a rare disease of the immune system. And in 2012, uh, she was hospitalized. And uh, she was eventually put on life support. And she died in the hospital at age 23 with Joshua holding her hand. Um, And he was devastated by this loss. He had a really hard time getting over it. He had proposed to her in in the hospital 
And if she had gotten better and had gotten a liver transplant, they probably would have been married. Um, so he considered her his, his fiance. And over the next eight years, uh, you know, the grief kind of came and went. I think grief is like that. It, it comes and goes in waves. Mm-hmm. Um, last September, he was feeling particularly bad um, because September was the month of Jessica's birthday. So, so September, when this story begins in the Chronicle, Joshua's feeling really down. He's really struggling with grief, um, struggling in other ways. You know, it's the pandemic. He's on lockdown. He's kind of isolated. He's living in this basement apartment with his dog. And around that time, other forms of therapy, Jason. Yeah, he had tried. He had tried traditional grief therapy. He had tried something. So he went to a series of classes um, right after Jessica died, and um, you know it did help because he was able to talk with with other survivors who had who had lost loved ones. Um, you know, he he didn't get much comfort talking to his friends in their twenties because he, he found that they were very impatient. They just sort of urged him to move on. Uh, if he talked about his his dead fiance, they told him he was being morbid. Um, and in grief therapy, he went through this exercise that's pretty standard uh, in settings like that, where he was asked by the therapist to to write a pencil and paper letter to Jessica or a series of letters to sort of get his emotions out um, and not bottle them up in unhealthy ways. But he 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 really had a hard time with that. It 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 didn't it didn't feel like he was actually talking to Jessica because obviously um, she couldn't respond. And so he never really got a sense of closure that he needed. And so he continued to kind of struggle with this grief. And then last September, um, he was at this low point. And that's when he happened to discover this mysterious website called Project December. And that's when some pretty amazing things started to happen. And so what was Project December? And how did that how did it work? Yeah, it's it's a chatbot service. So, so chatbots are uh, artificial personalities that you can type back and forth with, just like you are um, slacking with a colleague or texting a friend on your phone, or I guess AOL Instant Messenger, <laughs> or IRC, even Depending on that. your era of internet chatting, yeah. Yeah, right, right. I'm, I'm sort of like outing my age here. But, um, you know, chatbots have been around for, uh, for decades, you know, since the 60s in, in primitive forms. But in the last three or four years, uh, there have been huge advances in uh, these things called large language models, which are an application of machine learning. Basically, these models depend on really powerful hardware and massive data sets to create the appearance of intelligence by generating English text. You, you, you give them a little prompt, um, a piece of text, like a line from a poem or a sentence from a novel, and at the flick of a switch, uh, these language models will mimic that writing style, and they'll generate text that often seems like a human wrote it. And this Project December website, this chatbot website, was harnessing one of the most advanced and sophisticated language models out there um, called GPT-3. And it was using GPT- OpenAI, right, here in San Francisco. Yeah, OpenAI, San Francisco company co-founded by Elon Musk. So Project December was harnessing GPT-3 to power this kind of new generation of chatbots. Um, And these chatbots have really kind of crossed a a fascinating and, you know, sort of terrifying (laughs) threshold. you know, because the, the, the language models are far from perfect, right? It's, it's when you're chatting with them, it's obviously not human intelligence. They have limitations, they repeat themselves, they babble, etc. But they also have these moments of really stunning creativity and clarity and, and sometimes, you know, even something more. I mean, there are moments when you're chatting with these um, things where you would swear that the chatbot is intelligent, conscious, sentient, you, you'd swear it has emotions, you'd swear that it understands 
your emotions. And it's a really strange and surprising experience. So what did Joshua then end up doing with this Project December website? So on Project December, there are some built-in chatbots that you can explore. Um, th there's one that impersonates William Shakespeare um, badly, like really badly. <laughs> um, there's one that pretends to be God. Uh, there's one that pretends to be Lucifer. Um, there's one that is modeled after the, the female um, AI assistant in the movie Her. Um, but when Joshua started playing with Project December, he was particularly drawn to a feature of the site that allows users to create their own custom chatbots. So, so there's, this, there's this part of the site where you can enter um, a small amount of seed text to create a, a chatbot. Um, essentially, you, you take a piece of text uh, in the style of the conversation that you, you want the, the bot to have with you. Uh, you put that into the site. You also write a little paragraph describing um, who the bot is and, and who you are. And, you know, uh, just a couple of hundred uh, characters for each one, it takes very little. And then you, um, you initialize the bot and all of a sudden you're, you're chatting with this thing that is mimicking uh, pretty closely the seed text that you put in. And, you know, Joshua, after playing this with this for a little bit, realized that there was nothing preventing him from creating a chatbot that could simulate uh, Jessica, his ex-fiance. So he had kept all of her old uh, text messages. He'd kept her old Facebook messages. And so very quickly, he was able to find a couple of um, text messages from her that, that to him sounded very characteristic of Jessica, mm. right? Mm -hmm. That used emoji in the way that she did, that sort of used her phrasing and her banter. And so he put that in as a seed text. He created this um, Jessica chatbot and he began to uh, talk with her. So I want to play, we actually had just a couple of people uh, read a couple snippets of this transcript and we oh, just yeah. want to hear uh, one. Let's hear the first cut of just people reading the chatbot lines here along with uh, Joshua. I miss you so freaking much. You have no idea. It's killing me. I'm so sorry. I love you. I love you too. It's been eight years since you died. Yes, I know. I think that's enough time to stop telling me how you miss me, honey. I am right here, you know. How's your life? Ah, and you can see how this might be attractive to someone who's really suffering from severe grief. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's one thing to read a transcript. I think it's an, another thing to be having the conversation in the moment. Um, and there were definitely things. So, so in, in the beginning, Joshua was pretty skeptical. Um, he didn't think it was actually going to work. He thought there was no way that this uh, chatbot would be able to sort of replicate Jessica's texting style. Um, he, he didn't think that it was going to be possible to have any kind of um, deep or emotional conversation with this bot. Um, but very quickly, the bot began to convince him that they could talk about emotions. They, they could talk about grief. And there were some things that the bot said that just really seemed like things that Joshua uh, or Jessica would have said, right? Uh, that really reminded him strongly of her. Um, for instance, one, one thing that, uh, that she said was, um, he, he asked her very early in the conversation, uh, where do you think you are? You know, are you in the internet? Like, where does it feel like you are? And Jessica said, uh, everywhere and nowhere. <laughs> Then there was this little gesture that was indicated with asterisk, cups her head with her hands. And then the Jessica bot said, I'm trying to work that out. How are you, honey? Right. Yeah. So everything, in, everywhere and nowhere, uh, 
Joshua felt was exactly the kind of thing that Jessica would have said. And so, so there were these little moments that kind of kept him, kept him uh, glued to the screen and made him feel like there really was some piece of Jessica's uh, actual real life voice that was being channeled uh, by Project December and by this, this language model, um, you know, like, coming through the screen. He didn't think that he was like channeling her spirit though, right? I mean, he knew this was like a simulation. Uh, you know, I've heard interviews with him where, you know, he's very like self-conscious about the fact that like, no, this is really just like a piece of right. technology, right? Yeah, I mean, he, he went into it uh, with eyes open, right? I, he, he, he contrasts this with going to a medium or a psychic, uh, where you actually think that you're channeling a ghost or spirit, um, he he knew uh, from the get go that this was a trick, an illusion, that he was using uh, uh, technology to try to fool himself into having a conversation that he believed might help him get over his grief. You know, for him, it, for him, it was it essentially him? an experiment. Yeah. yeah. Did it help him? I guess that's really the ultimate proof point here. Yeah, I mean, he says that it did. Um, he says that it helped him um, say some things that he had wanted to say to Jessica when she was alive, but he never got a chance to say to her. Um, he got a chance to hear some things from, from her <laughs> that he had always wanted to hear. Um, you know, there was a section of one of the conversations where uh, he was essentially just telling her the things that he had done in her honor, in her name, uh, uh, since she died to try to remember her. I mean, imagine being able to tell a, a, a dad loved one the things that you've that you've done to keep them in your memory and to have them say, thank you. That means a lot to me. Um, you know, he was able to do that in, in the context of, of these conversations. Yeah. We're talking about the use of AI to talk with simulations of departed loved ones, the ethics concerns, and the technology itself. With Jason Fagoni, a narrative writer at the San Francisco Chronicle and the author of The Jessica Simulation, Love and Loss in the Age of AI. And we want to hear from you. Would you consider using this technology to talk with a simulation of the loved one who's passed on? Have you found it helpful to have imaginary conversations with someone who's died? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. We'll be back with more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the use of AI to talk with simulations of departed loved ones, the ethics concerns, and the technology, too. We've got Jason Fagoni, a narrative writer with the San Francisco Chronicle and author of The Jessica Simulation, Love and Loss in the Age of AI. 
And for the rest of the hour, we want to kind of follow two different strands. One, sort of how this technology works itself, kind of pull pull away some of the, the magic. Uh, and we're also going to talk about the sort of ethical, uh, deep ethical implications. And so we have two new guests to help us do that. First, we have Robin Sloan, one of my good friends and a novelist who's been experimenting with AI text generation for many years. Uh, he's the author of Sourdough and Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore. Welcome to the show, Robin. Hey, thank you. It is a delight to be here. <laughs> and we also have Alexis Elder. Uh, she's an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Minnesota Duluth, and she works on the ethics and philosophy of technology and has written the most salient uh, paper that you could imagine. It's called Conversation from Beyond the Grave, a Neo-Confucian Ethics of Chatbots of the Dead. Welcome to the show, Professor Elder. Thanks for having me here, and uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about a paper I never thought was going to be of public interest. <laughs> and it's it's really fascinating. Let's let's start right there, Professor Elder, because I think you know um, it's easy to imagine that maybe this is the first time that someone has tried to do this, or but there are other people who have, who have seen the possibility of having a, a corpus, a body of text uh, of someone they've loved, and they see AI chatbots and they realize they can train them. Um, so tell us a little bit about, you know, how you came to write this paper uh, and what examples you'd seen of that, uh, of, of that you know, method of grieving. Sure. So uh, as is often the case with emerging technologies, science fiction kind of beat us to the punch. Uh, as near as I can tell, there was a Black Mirror episode on this a few years ago. I think it was uh, Be Right Back. Mm -hmm. And then um, there was a company replica uh couple of the co-founders, one of them passed away uh, and the, the company specialized in developing chatbots that were personalized by um, text messages, social media history, that sort of thing. Uh, and the other uh, co-founder, I believe, uh, created a, a memorial to him that's essentially a chatbot that, that converses in his style. And that kind of um, caught my attention. I was chatting with a colleague um, and at the time, we were actually talking about the way that classical Chinese philosophy has this really kind of rich, um, detailed discussion of the ethics of mourning and funerals and interaction with remains and our relationships uh, to the deceased. And he kind of nudged me. Um, this was Sam Lau out of, I believe, University of Tacoma. Um, he was like, you should write a paper on that. Uh, and uh, I don't know that he remembers that conversation, but <laughs> I ended up doing it. <laughs> So, you know, um, in the paper, you kind of run through some of the suggestions that the, that philosophy might suggest, you know, to implementing chatbots in this way. Like, kind of, kind of what are they? So it looks like one of the things that's going on here is we're, we're trying to figure out um, what do we want these bots to do? And so in the, some of the original uh, science fiction, right, um, Black Mirror is, is sort of dark and a lot of a lot of tech ethics is about spotting um, potential shortcomings or potential worries about emerging technology. Uh, like people build them, build build tech because they they have the positives in mind, but there's a tendency to overlook the negatives. So I was interested in the kinds of objections people might have uh, to this this kind of approach and ways to to meet them. And I think I identified three major what seemed to me to be major concerns. And it was kind of interesting um, reading Jason's piece to see them. Kind of playing out. Uh, one was about the idea that if we can sort of um, maintain our original relationships beyond the grave, so to speak, that they might tend to isolate us. Mm -hmm. um, 
Another was that there might be a tendency to, to focus on what our, our loved ones can do for us, right? If having conversations, um, sort of offering emotional support without the potential to be um, responsive to somebody's actual needs and concerns. And just sort of leaning into those kinds of concerns, um, it looked like these were things that people might worry about, especially in a culture, and, and Jason, I think was speaking to this earlier, where people are often encouraged to kind of get over it, stop being such a downer, um, move past grief mm -hmm. in a way that, that might sort of create a vicious feedback loop. Um, but it looked to me like these technologies also have uh, the potential to help us to grieve well and to create sort of social um, anchor points for socially supported mourning. So distinguishing grief, the, the personal experience of bereavement from mourning, the kind of social practices and structures uh, that help us come together uh, when a loved one is lost. Yeah. I want to uh, pursue Robin Sloan a, a little bit more about how this technology actually works. You know, we have uh, OpenAI has created these different language models. Um, and how have they built them? Like, what is the training that's gone into generating this kind of a, a amazing ability to produce novel English sentences? That's a great question. And I think um, I'm going to sort of amplify something that Jason gestured at earlier, which really is the data. Because, of course, there's code here. You know, there's a computer program, a, a very, very sophisticated one. I mean, truly, truly cutting edge. And OpenAI and its staff deserve credit for that. At the same time, it's worthless without a big data set to literally teach it the ins and outs and rhythms and cadences and, and various grammars of English and indeed of many other languages too. And one of the things that I think is particularly interesting about this Jessica simulation and the state of you know, language generation by AI now is how quickly its appetite for that data has increased. I mean two generations of AI models ago, which by the way is like two years max, <laughs> um, you might have trained one of these models with a handful of books and started to get some interesting results. You know, that's your Shakespeare bot or your, your Sloan bot maybe. Um, a generation ago, uh, you needed hundreds of books to sort of uh, saturate their little cyber simulated neurons. With this generation, the current state of the art, including GPT-3, which is the model that's running behind the scenes um, with Project December and, and Jessica, this, this synthetic Jessica, they need so much text that basically only the whole internet will suffice or something close to it. Mm. And so the implication there, by the way, if you're a person uh, who has published something online, if you left a comment in a Reddit thread, or you, you know, publish some posts to your movie review blog in 2013, these systems were trained on that text, almost certainly. And so in a sense, you're in there, you're, you're banging around ready to be used as, uh, as fuel, as, as kind of raw material to create these uh, simulations. And then when you give the seed text or this, you know, the, the text uh, transcripts in, in this case, how does that then end up sort of shaping the model's output? Yeah, so you can think of them, and this is this is really important to understand that they're not smart in any uh, normal, everyday use of the word smart. Uh, what they are is deeply statistical. Uh, the assignment they've been given in code, you know, it's kind of articulated in probably the Python programming language is 
you need to get really good at predicting what word comes after another word, after another word, after another word. And you need to be able to do that in tons of different contexts. It's not enough to just get good at writing a poem. It's not enough to just get good, get good at sort of puppeteering a corporate email. You need to be able to do it all. And so in the beginning, of course, the program, the model is horrible at it. I mean, it's, I mean, it's awful. It's, it's like random noise, just gibberish pouring out of the screen. Uh, but the good news is that it can make mistakes very, very, very quickly. And so uh, within a matter of hours, uh, you know, in some cases, it actually, with these large models, it takes literal days or even at the outside weeks of computer churning time. Uh, but by the end of it, it has derived a really solid statistical understanding of, you know, how do those weird humans put these symbols in order? And uh, it can then use that to sort of tantalize, uh, delight, and or creep us out. Yeah. And I want to give us a little more sense of sort of what the possibilities are here. And we have another uh, cut from the transcripts from uh, Jason's story. Um, and let's, uh, let's hear that. Cut two. I can tell that there's something on your mind. I can sense it. You're looking down at your hands and the way you shuffle your feet when you are stressed. So what's going on? I just miss you, that's all. I miss you too. I love being around you. You're so much fun to be around. I wish you'd relax a little bit. I know you're getting headaches and you're moody, but that's life, right? I'm sorry. You deserve to be happy. Just focus on what you have, not what you don't have. Okay, I will. Let's get back to each other soon. I've got to go, but please remember, no matter what, you are my world and I'm yours. I promise. I'll never stop loving you for as long as I live and hopefully ever after. Good night. Good night. I love you. So we've heard this somewhat prodigious language generation um, out of Jessica, uh, you know, the simulation um, that was created here. And I want to ask um, first, Professor Elder, like when you see that you read that you hear that um what do you how do you read what's going on there on sort of an ethical level great question so i think there's a little bit of a um a fallacy or a a, a mistaken way of thinking when people think about chatbots is believing that they need to be you know perfect or near perfect in order for people to be taken in and it seems much more uh true to human nature that we can sort of conjure up these really rich evocative experiences sometimes with very little um very little prompting right so having a, a memento from a loved one um or a a, a phrase or a smell or a, a fragment of a song and it seems to me that's something really powerful about what's going on here uh it's i would suspect um and i think this this connects to some of robin's discussion that some of those uh transcript discussions didn't have that quality right that um Joshua had to, to fill in some blanks or overlook some mistakes, uh, but it seems really striking and significant to me that we can have these very powerful reactions to the right kind of pattern or the right kind of turn of phrase in these these small exchanges and that those can be really emotionally significant for us and that can have that can have positives and negatives right it can make us vulnerable to exploitation, uh, but it can also help resonate with us and help us to commemorate and remember uh, relationships that have been important to us. Yeah, Jason. Uh, so we don't need to wait for you know the, the the perfect simulation to have these kinds of effects. It's something we're we're living with already. Right, right, right. J Jason Fagoni with um, the Chronicle. When you 
hear, when you read that transcript or hear it, um, it almost feels to me borderline emotionally coercive. You know that like this this yeah. this chatbot is sort of putting out these things that are are causing Joshua Barbo to feel these feelings without actually it it having a, a true meaning. <laughs> Is yeah. that how you ended up seeing it? <laughs> I don't. I still don't really know what to make of it or, or what to think of it. I mean, it's been fascinating to listen to to Robin and Professor Elder. Um, I mean, I think Professor Elder's guess is one hundred percent correct. There, there were there were definitely moments in these conversations where um, the Jessica chatbot faltered. Right? Um, you know, she she would seem to uh, forget things. She would make mistakes. Uh, she referred to her sister as quote our daughter. Um, you know, she, but every time that happened, Joshua just sort of forgave it and, uh, gently corrected her, you know, yeah, Yeah. go ahead. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 he was, he was filling in the gaps, right? The brain fills in the gaps and and that's part of what I think made it so powerful for him. But the, 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 the thing that really amazed me and that sort of amazes me more broadly about this technology is that you know, like Robin said, it's completely statistical, right? Like in one sense, uh, all, all that these language models are doing is, is, is what they put on the box. They just guess the next word. And, and, and they do that based on this, this very kind of like cold analysis of a massive data set. But at the same time, like the, the way that you interact with them is nothing like we expected AI to be really. I mean, if you think about sort of all of the canonical examples of um, humanoid robots from TV and movies, like, like think about data from Star Trek, right? Um, th- these are these are cold, calculating, you know, emotionless artificial intelligences, right? Like the, the the defining thing about data is that he doesn't understand human emotion, and that's kind of how we expected AI to be, I think. But and and in a lot of ways, GPT three is 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 um, is the opposite of that, right? Like it's it's totally stupid in in so many ways. It doesn't know how to add two plus two. It doesn't even really know what a noun or a verb is. Like it doesn't know grammar. But at the same time, it seems to have this like emotional perceptiveness it seems it seems to just kind of know the right thing to say at the right moment and that's that's much weirder and more mysterious and stranger and more powerful <laughs> than uh, than i think a lot of us were expecting robin do you want to respond to that yeah you know i would say that um it's actually very useful and um and noteworthy we should really zero in on the fact that this is so chewy so interesting and 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 even if we don't know the answers we're very interested in asking these questions like what is this feeling you know <laughs> what what are these strange new kind of experiences and i think you know it's not just ai i think it's a whole host of digital things actually vast realms of the whole internet i think they feel like ghosts and dreams actually much more than they feel like you know cars and bridges and, um, you know, I think that's interesting. And talking about them, therefore, in those terms is not just fanciful. You know, it's not just the fiction writer saying, oh, isn't the internet a dream? It's actually really accurate and therefore useful. And that language becomes a good lens to start to understand, like, what the 21st century is doing to us. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, when we first saw the emergence of this kind of new generations of artificial intelligence, it was mostly in the visual realm. It was training on photos and then being able to spit out these new photos or new landscapes that didn't exist. And people did really see them as dreams, right? I mean, they were like, oh, this is the computer dreaming. Yeah, that's right. And also, you know, I, we've talked about this a, li- a little bit, the actual experience of 
um, whether you're talking with an AI-generated chatbot or if you're doing what I tend to do, which is sort of start a story, a paragraph, and ask one of these language models to continue it, uh, you quickly see some of the same effects that I think are familiar to almost everyone from dreams. Uh, a sense of never really beginning or ending, uh, a sense of the context sort of slipping away. You know, any given moment of a dream can be very sharp actually, like very vivid and, and in fact, very realistic. But then suddenly you're like in a submarine and you're like, how did I get into a submarine? Oh, well, and you just go with it because that's what dreams are. And it is, it's eerie actually, it's eerie and, and maybe telling to see those feelings and those patterns replicated almost perfectly um, by these, you know, technical constructs. Yeah. Professor Elder, I, I just wanted you, we're going to talk about this more when we come back from the break, but there's this concept of the imaginal relationship, right? Which is, can, can you describe a little bit of that? And then we'll, we'll talk about more when we come back from the break. Yeah, I think it's a concept that's been really nicely articulated by my colleague, uh, Kate Norlock. And it's this idea that this kind of filling in the gaps and um, interpreting things in light of a relationship isn't just something we do with AI and with with chatbots. It's something we do with each other, right? We have these kinds of um, mental constructs of our friends and family and loved ones, and those are important to to help us make sense of just our, our daily relationships. And so maybe it's not a surprise that we already have these um, these mental constructs running that. We, we, we talk in our heads, right? With people, we have, we have conversations uh, in our heads, or many of us do, um, with people we care about when we're thinking through things. And so when, when people pass away, in some sense, we're already dealing with the residue. And I think this picks up on, on Robin's point about um, the analogy to dreams with, with AI, right? Having some, some pattern generation and some pattern detection working without necessarily being anchored. I think there's something similar going on with our social mental models of each other. Uh, and that means that in some senses, what modern technologies like GPT-3 are doing is actually kind of analogous to something that we already do automatically uh, in many of our social interactions. We're talking about the use of AI to simulate departed loved ones with Alexis Elder, an associate professor of philosophy at University of Minnesota, Robin Sloan, novelist who's played a lot with AI, and Jason Fagoni, a narrative writer with the San Francisco Chronicle, and we want to hear from you. Would you consider using this technology to talk with a simulation of a loved one? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. We'll be back with more after the break. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Coming up in our next hour with Mina Kim, 
the painful legacy of boarding schools for Native American children. In June, Interior Secretary Deb Holland launched an investigation of the so-called Cultural Assimilation Program that removed tens of thousands of indigenous children from their families in the 19th and 20th centuries. We talk about that dark chapter of U.S. history and how it touched California. To listen to past shows and subscribe to our podcast, visit kqed.org forum. And for the latest updates on our programs and guests, find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're at KQED Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about AI chatbots simulating departed loved ones with Jason Fagoni, a writer at the San Francisco Chronicle, Robin Sloan, a novelist who's been experimenting with AI text generation for years, and Alexis Elder, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Minnesota Duluth. Um, Listener comments, Noel tweets, maybe the real issue is our culture's dismissal of dealing with grief. You can never get over it. You learn to live with it and keep going. Uh, I also want to bring in Nick from Vallejo to uh, talk about uh, his experience. Welcome to the show, Nick. Hey, thank you. Um, so my experience in this, um, there used to be like I'm I'm thinking like 30 or 40 years ago, there was a a program on, that somebody put online. It was a text based thing. I think it was called Lisa, and you could you could text things to her. She would text you back, you know. And I got involved in this because I I got involved involved with my wife, um, who on our first date told me she was dying of cancer. And we made a plan that on every Wednesday night at seven o'clock, we would talk about her future death. Okay. And how she would react to it. And she would, and we wrote down, and this is like way back. Okay. So data was expensive, but, but we wrote down over five years, every response to any question I had. And, um, sorry, getting emotional, but, Unfortunately, I, unfortunately, that computer got destroyed. But but we did this over and over and over again, and and we started putting it in the sequence because I was a programmer and she was. We we started trying to make something like like the AI thing, which is ama- amazing. I mean, it really is um, scary, but amazing. Um, and we we put all this stuff down, and just the process of doing it was very cool, you know, and cleansing or um, whatever. But but uh, you you guys played a piece, I think, with him talking to his wife. It sounded really pedantic. I'm, I'm not sure if the word is, word is pedantic, but I think it is. It it sounded it it didn't sound healthy to me, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I I I, don't, I mean uh, that's my judgment. Sorry, you know. But no. <laughs> but it sounded what you laughing. <laughs> No, no, no. I totally, I, I, it did, it did sound like it had, there are, there are these rhythms to some of the chatbot conversations that, that it's don't, very, don't it's feel very tricky. It's, it's, yeah. it's tricky stuff, you know, I mean, it really is. It's like, yeah. sometimes they're smarter than we are, but, yeah. but, but we, we, we did over five years of these conversations every Wednesday, seven o'clock, because she knew she was going to die. She thought she was dying in two years. She lasted 20. You know that was that was a blessing, but the trouble, but the issue was we. She was trying to give me conversation with her, so she would know exactly, so I would know exactly who who it was that I was with. Okay, and um and which I wish I had it, 
a chat box, man, I, I, that would be lovely. But I'd probably get addicted to it. <laughs> so it's like, you know, because I cared for her that much. But the, 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 the part that I heard, which is why I identified the thing that I, the, the conversation that you guys played, uh, is pedantic the right word? I, I'm sorry, I, I can't. I'm not I sure, can't, actually. You know, yeah, maybe well, didactic you know, a little like bit. Self, <laughs> yeah. Self-serving, self-serving. Mm-hmm. How about that? Mm-hmm. Um, makes 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 me happy. So, like, I was always, and she and I talked about this a lot because she was smarter than me. But but um, she was like, you know, like it was like you can't. If we do this, we can't do it so it makes you feel good what we have to do is because we were really trying to do something very similar to this, but AI didn't exist, you know, yeah. this, yeah. this 30 years ago. And, and we were just writing code line by line, you know, and see, and, and like, like the idea of a conversation with somebody who no longer existed, uh, we, we actually ended up doing one called green. I'm sorry, please. Christians don't get pissed at me. We called it green Jesus it's greenjesus.com. It's gone now. But but Green Jesus would ask. It was kind of like the Lisa thing. Green Jesus would ask your. We 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 modeled it off the uh, the the book The Prophet, you know, um, and 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 so it was very simple. It was a whole bunch of words, you know, a lot of got a lot of philosophy and stuff like that. But it was easy because you know most of the prophet is like one page, you know, it's like nothing. Yeah. And so we just kept doing that. But then she had a teach. Her name is Verna. Um, hey Nick, she, I wanna. I, I just yeah. wanna ask um, Professor Elder just about some of the, your experiences, um, because I'm I'm curious, Professor Elder, about just you know when when some when people begin to prepare for grief in this way in a culture that doesn't actually deal all that well with with death. Yeah, um, what are some of the things that you right. have uh, that you've seen work, Professor Elder? Yeah, I, and I've been thinking about this um, both with with um, Nick's story and and Noel's comment about the the sort of missing piece of of culture. Is that to me is something that's really valuable about looking to um, the history of philosophy to see how people have talked because you know two two points right one we're mortal um, we die and uh, that means all of us are at some point going to experience the death of a loved one and that's going to be a major event for us. Uh, and two, we're technological creatures, right? right? We like to um, innovate and create um, and build tools to help us cope. But I think one of the tricky things about grief is when you're building a technology, you need to know what your goal is. And we're kind of on the fence about grief, right? Is the goal to make ourselves feel better um, or is it to live with the pain uh, or you know, some avoid false dichotomies, right? Some, some balance of those two. But I think that's something um, really important about what Nick is saying is if it's there's there's a sense that if we want to do grief right, so to speak, um, the social and ritual trappings of mourning can help us to sit with the discomfort rather than avoid it uh, through simulations or distractions. And I think that's something that really came out to me in in just reading this this very ancient discussion about what do we do with a much older kind of artifact a corpse right which like uh like an ai conversation right it conjures up conversation it conjures up memories um and gives us an appearance of a presence but it's also kind of eerie because it doesn't um respond 
in the same ways that we, that we expect, especially when it's the, the, the remains of someone we've, we've loved and, and had an extensive relationship with. And so we really need to think about, right, what is, what do we want mourning to look like and how do we provide ourselves the right kinds of tools, social and material uh, to help us to live well given that we are mortal. So that's, that's for me, the, the really kind of interesting thing that's coming out of um, both of these contributions so far. Yeah. Merrily uh, comments, newly widowed people are very emotionally vulnerable. And my initial fear of this is that this will be another example of technology that drives people toward isolation when that is exactly the wrong direction. People who are mourning need real people to listen and really care, not virtual bots making up imaginary conversation. Um, Jason Fagoni, did did this bot make its way to other people um, in in the family? Um, like, did Jessica's parents use it, or was it just um, uh, just Joshua? Yeah, amazing to hear that comment because that's pretty much exactly the reaction that uh, one of Jessica's sisters had, Amanda. So, um, so her her family really didn't know what to make of these conversations and the way that Joshua was using the Jessica chatbot. Um, Jessica's mother, Karen, had, she was curious about it, but she didn't read the, the transcript on purpose. She said, you know, I, however realistic it seems, I, I know that it's not Jessica. I know that it's not my daughter. Um, she had no interest in, in, in looking at it or interacting with the chatbot. Um, Amanda did read the transcript and um, she came away feeling that uh, it's nothing that she would ever want to do and that this kind of, this approach to dealing with grief uh, is totally unhealthy because it's an escape from dealing with pain instead of a confrontation with pain. Um, and she also raised the possibility of addiction, you know, like what happens if, um, if you get into these conversations and then you lose access to the AI, do you, do you have to suffer that um, that loss again, right? A kind of echo of the previous loss. Yeah. So, so and I don't really know. I mean, I, 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 like I said, I, I don't know. I don't know what to think of it. I don't know if this is, you know, as Professor Elder said, if this is doing grief right. I think on the one hand, you don't want to tell people how they should grieve, um, but on the other hand, there are there are definitely um, dangers in putting sort of vulnerable people in this position. Yeah, you know, uh, Larry, another uh, listener asks. How can an AI algorithm account for change that might have been? If it is based on prior writings or performances, it's a very static view of the person that then lives in perpetuity. And we were even, one of the producers, Caroline and I, were talking about the way that uh, Jessica, the chat bot, interacts, does have this very feel of like years ago with like little emoticons and smiley faces that like we just wouldn't use anymore. Um, I Maybe, Robin, you could talk about this on sort of a... Uh, a, a technical basis. I think there there kind of is no way to account for that change, right? On the other hand, I'm assuming that the language model in general would, because it's using current data, would in fact sort of push the language along as well. Yeah, that's right. And of course, there was an opportunity for the, some of those eerie feelings of a, a simulation of someone who's, you know, long dead uh, talking about uh, the hot new video game, you know, or some right. some new political story. I think the 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 skill these these new models have at sort of puppeteering language um, can conceal some of these pretty significant limitations, and it's only by using them 
for a long time um, in a lot of different ways that you start to see them very clearly. Um, their kind of stuckness is one of them, the, the sense that, you know, once they've completed that training, e even if it has been on a giant corpus of text, they're frozen in time unless somebody goes back and, you know, adds the new slice of the internet from 2021. Um, and in addition to that, you know, this kind of actually connects to, I, I think, the, the caller Nick's comments about, about his own experience kind of having hard conversations about death versus um, the actually very very pleasant tone of the Jessica simulations uh, conversations, uh, AIs will never tell you that you're wrong. Um, There's a sense you get from using them over a long period of time. They're almost polite, even servile to a fault. And in some applications, I guess that's fine. You know, maybe a customer service chat bot should always say, oh, of course, yes, mm, uh-huh, we'll do that. But in almost every other context, certainly creative context, and I think definitely interpersonal contexts. An essential part is someone being willing to say, uh, you need to step away from the keyboard <laughs> or, or, you know, that's actually not such a great idea, Sloan. Maybe we should back up and, and reconsider this plot. Um, but the AIs today for as advanced as they are, for as far as they've come, uh, that is one thing that they will never do. Um, Professor Elder, you know, you've studied rituals, basically. And I think is it possible that these chatbots could be implemented in some different way so that they would be sort of re-embedded in, in social life? And would that be different? Yeah, this is something that I find really interesting because technologies are never sort of deployed in isolation, right? They're always um, integrated into societies and with existing norms and existing issues. And there's been a little bit of a, a critique of, of current um, technical development models like there's an app for that right you just find a little piece uh, of uh, a human life and you go okay this this is going to fix that uh, but I think something that this conversation is really calling out is that this technology is interacting or has the potential to interact really badly with a social gap uh, that we as a society have not always been great about supporting um, folks experiencing bereavement and so we might think about like, how could this be integrated responsibly into rituals? And when I say rituals, sometimes people think like really high ritual. I just mean, um, you know, social norms and practices uh, to support loved ones more generally. So could you have a chat bot that's not something you like secretively go off to your room to come converse with, but, a, you know, something that that family and friends can come together and have conversations to um, share with each other or to remember? Can you have uh, a way of helping people to, to say goodbye, right? Just to have those last closing conversations um, that are important, but also make sure that they have the living supports that they need. So I think there's room for this, but it needs to be at a different level than the individual development level. Um, and certainly then just sort of turning a, a bot loose uh, to see how it interacts with with vulnerable vulnerable um, grieving people, right? But think about how can we come together as communities in the same way that things like um, you know preservation of corpses. This is something that Shunzi talks about in in ancient China is use of things like makeup and perfume uh, to help preserve a corpse long enough for folks to gather and mourn. That's a technology too, uh, but it's not one that we, that has been used in isolation or maybe. It's yeah. not only been used in isolation, um, but is a way to create these kinds of public spaces. So that's something I'm really interested in yeah. is can we can we build practices and communities 
that can integrate these kinds of technologies, even if that's not currently part of the picture? And how do we start thinking in that direction? Let's bring in Marshall from Los Gatos. Welcome to the show, Marshall. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This is probably one of the most interesting uh, calls, forums I've heard in, in quite a long time. And uh, I just, the quality of the guests and the calls has just been amazing. Um, I, I work tangentially in AI, both at a consultancy I used to work at and, and now in the startup sector. And I, I was really drawn to a story recently that said uh, almost every um, AI model created to tackle um, the COVID crisis um, failed spectacularly. Everyone. Uh, and there's something like 227 of them created by like major universities and major companies, et cetera. Um, so as we've been talking about AI for more than 10 years now and the applications for humanity and what it's going to do, it's very clearly failing at scale on a major level. Um, and so when opportunities arise like this, where some of humanity can be shown and certain people and the, the, the previous person speaking about how maybe this is part of a blend of how we deal with grieving that made a lot of sense to me because people are not happy right now. We have not nailed this grieving process down right now. So if the AI can have a, a, a chance at that and be part of a mix that we use to treat people with, I think I'm all for it. So I think the real derogatory terms about Black Mirror and the, and the red flags from all of the ethicists and things, I think that's all well and good. But AI has been a flop for humanity to date. So when episodes like this happen, I really think it's worth looking at this use case and as we are doing on this call and really exploring this and seeing how we can bring this type of thing to scale. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you, Marshall. Um, Anna writes, uh, a dear friend passed away about 10 years ago. I had read every email and text message endlessly beyond the point of usefulness. Grief is profoundly isolating to begin with and imagining myself alone with my phone, pretending to talk to the dead makes me sad, but I absolutely would have done it to the detriment of my health and eventual growth. On the other hand, grief is personal. Whatever gets you through it is invaluable. Jason Fagoni, um, last question. Just wanted to know, at the end of the day, would you, if you lost a loved one, would you end up having reported this story so deeply, turn to a technology like this? Yeah, that's a a good question. I I have thought about it, and I think I I would try it. Um, And you know, I've never lost somebody who's who's especially close to me, so so I don't know what that's like. But you know, I, after reporting the story, I I kept on thinking that you know, as exotic as it seemed, maybe there was something uh, in the end that was that was really not so exotic about it because Joshua was using this in a sense as a memory aid. You know, mm-hmm. um, however he was trying to get therapy, he was using it to remember Jessica and to help sort of revive his own memory of her mm-hmm. uh, and the chatbot absolutely helped him do that too. So to the extent that, uh, that it was effective there, I you think he got something out of it and, and I would do it. Yeah. In a second, I would do it. We've been talking about the use of AI to talk with simulated departed loved ones with Jason Fagoni, San Francisco Chronicle, novelist Robin Sloan, and professor of philosophy, Alexis Elder. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Thank you to Emily Grace Hall and Joey Goodman for acting out the chat logs and to Caroline Smith, who produced this segment. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.